Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. Delighted to be with you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we've got an interesting topic today talking about AARP, their caregiving report, Valuing the Invaluable. Carol, as many of you know, is Executive Director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Uh, She has served on a number of national advisory boards, is well known across this country for her work in gerontology. She's got a master's degree in social gerontology and nearly 30 years experience in the field of aging and caregiving and was one of Next Avenue's top 50 influencers on aging. And Carol, our guest today is someone you know and know very well. We'll be talking with uh, Susan Reinhardt in a moment. That's right. And we're so thrilled to have Susan with us. The the reports that AARP has come out with over the years have really been seminal works. I mean, they have laid the foundation for what we understand about caregiving and, and some of the policy issues as well as the practice issues. I can't think of a better person to have than Susan, who's helped oversee that work, to, to have her join us today. Well, let me introduce you. Susan is Senior Vice President at AARP, directing the Public Policy Institute, the focal point of public policy research and analysis at the state, federal, and international levels. She leads that PPPI's Family Caregiving Initiative and also serves as the Chief Strategist for the Center to Champion Nursing in America. Susan holds a master's degree in nursing from the University of Cincinnati and has a PhD in sociology from Rutgers University. And Dr. Reinhardt, thank you for joining us. It's so, so nice to be here. Thank you. I was delighted to hear from Carol asking me to join her today. So, and you too. Thank you. Well, tell us about the work that you all are doing, looking at uh, valuing the invaluable, which are the caregivers across America. That's right. We started doing this work more than 10, actually, it's been about 16 years ago. We started looking at what it would cost to pay unpaid family caregivers for the unbelievable work that they're doing, taking care of their family member, neighbor, or friend. And we repeat that. We do this. uh, We have a very strong methodology of how we do this, but not to bore you with that. We do that about every four years. And we have that information at the national level and even more important at the state level. So what we have found in our latest version is that the amount of free care that family caregivers are giving to this country is $600 billion. And I always like to do that billion, billion dollars. Try to wrap your head around it. It's just amazing. That's real money. Yeah, it really is. Serious dollars, billion with a B. It is. It's about 
here's one way we tried to look at it. Try to make 20 million cars that are $30,000 each. That's that's a very concrete way. Or $1,800 for every person in the United States. We just keep trying. The money represents what? Where does it, where where does that analysis come from? What are you counting? We're counting the number of hours that family caregivers give. We look at studies. It's not just our work. We look across studies and see for people who are caring for an adult. Well, we look at children too, but mainly for people 18 plus, uh, how many hours they're doing and what those hours would cost if you had like a nurse's aid, a home health aid. You know, what is the average uh, wage in a a given state, for example? And then we put that all together and come up with, again, with this national number and um, and then bring it to the state level. So if that number is so large, do you think it has an an, almost a, a negative influence by people saying, oh, my gosh, we could never pay for that. We have to keep the caregivers going. Or does it say, wow, we really need to support caregivers? Yeah, um, so they can keep doing great, what they're that's doing. That's a great question, Carol, because I think it it can it can be like, oh my goodness, we can never never put out six hundred billion dollars, and then immediately we say, no, we can't. <laughs> so what we really do is we need to help them, quote unquote, stay on the job. That comes from Carol Levine, a very close colleague of mine, and herself a caregiver for many years. I know you know her too, Carol. She's um, been a guest that, several times on our oh, program. Just great. She's just great. So what does that mean? Help them stay on the job. Well, can we give them the tools they need? Can we help them navigate the very complicated world that they are living in? Can we give them training so they can do this very complex care? I call it medical nursing tests, you know, the medications and wound care and the kinds of things that nurses had typically done or other healthcare professionals. Can we, um, can we give them some tax credits, for example? So in what ways can we uh, teach nurses, social workers, social workers actually are fabulous at this, more <laughs> than nurses and doctors that need to know how to recognize a family caregiver and offer support because people don't even know what to ask. They always you know, we, we find that in focus groups. I don't know what I don't know. So how am I supposed to ask questions? We need to well, teach professionals to anticipate what they might need to know. We'll continue the conversation in a moment, but I want to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zorniel. We're talking with Susan Reinhardt, who is a senior executive at AARP. And uh, we're talking about a report they do annually looking at uh, valuing the invaluable. What is it the caregivers uh, contribute uh, to our economy and, and, in effect, avoid us for paying real dollars for? Uh, do those numbers also include the amount of lost wages that many caregivers experience. No, in fact, that's a very good point that you're making because we say this is a conservative estimate. But there are some studies that have looked at that, including ourselves. And it's it's not just their lost wages. It's also their direct out-of-pocket costs, which are close to 8000 a year for someone. Uh, and those who are long-distance caregivers, which means like maybe an hour away or more, that's closer to $12,000 a year. So it's significant dollars that they're putting out in addition to, as you said, any potential lost wages. Well, the figure that I've heard in lost wages, which is also the retirement income, the Social Security kind of multiplier effect, is around it's like $320,000 that one person leaves right. on the table. 
That's right, Carol. You've got that absolutely right. And that means not just for that person, but for the family. It has a trickling effect through generations. And, you know, to lose out on Social Security credits, that's a very serious uh, issue for your yourself as you might age and might need some help. Well, during COVID, um, since you just re-looked at this study, did you see a change from the caregiving side of the house on what's happening, particularly with women in caregiving post-COVID, um, than maybe what the curve was before that? Well, they put in more hours for sure. That became very obvious. And part of that is, you know, maybe I shouldn't have my mother or whoever you might be caring for go to a nursing home. I better keep that person here because it's a dangerous situation at that time to go into a nursing home in particular. So so they have they definitely put in more time, meaning they needed to juggle their work, their other family members that they might have. Uh, we call that the sandwich generation, which is going from the almost Gen Z, actually, to people who are closer to 60. It's kind of an expanding uh, sandwich generation, uh, but they're juggling you know, 60% are working. So they're juggling the work as well as caring for others. And are there ways that as you look at these numbers and the impact uh, on our community, let's talk about the workplace as one example, because we know many folks who are caregivers who do need to juggle work and caregiving uh, often run into serious problems with companies not accepting what they're doing and supporting them in that effort. How do we deal with that? We have been working on that for quite some time, and and it's changing somewhat for the better flexibility. I mean, we have more hybrid work for those that are doing that kind of work, which can be very helpful. But more employers themselves are family caregivers, so they're starting to get it. They were also impressed to hear that 25% or you know a quarter of family caregivers are younger, like millennials and younger. And that is a very important uh, employer group that, you, I mean, employee group that you want to recruit and retain. So they're get, it's becoming more interested in that. Now, not to say they have been giving caregiving leave. You know, ARP has literally caregiving leave. And there are other companies that have taken that route, which is really fantastic. But many don't even have sick leave, you know, never mind paid family leave. So we are looking for a use of sick leave, you know, at least be able to use the sick leave you have to care for somebody else, you know, take them to the, you know, healthcare professional, et cetera. That isn't even allowed by many employers. So we have a lot of work to do with employers. But I, I have to say I'm feeling a little more optimistic about it, that the word flexibility is, is like you know, constantly used these days. And caregivers, I hopefully will benefit from that, too. Well, what do you know, you were talking about the change in the workplace, you know, what has changed? I know you've been in the field a long time um, as well. What has changed besides that idea of flexibility since you started looking at caregiving to now? You know, what's what's different? Well, a little bit more likely a family caregiver will, will admit that they're a family caregiver. For a long time, it's been, I don't want anyone to know because I might be um, negatively affected. I might be discriminated against. As a matter of fact, we have something called the Long-Term Services and Support State Scorecard, which is coming out again in September. And we track at the state and some local levels, anti-discrimination laws that are going forward for family caregivers. That's a newer trend. And I think a really important trend. When we talk to those who are tracking this, they'll say that this is like the 
area of most increase of discrimination is family caregivers. They're afraid to say it and they could have a, you know, pass by a promotion, um, hopefully not lose their job, but they're quite concerned about it. So I do see more um, activity in the legislative arena of recognizing family caregivers, employed family caregivers in particular, and trying to protect them. Well, that that's great. You know, I, I had the experience last year of my sister had cancer and I took time off or I wanted to take time off to care for her. Um, and the FMLA, the, the Medical Leave Act, doesn't cover siblings. And so they told me I had to keep working or I would lose my job. Oh, Carol, I am so sorry. So, so very sorry. And you're right. If, if we could expand the definition of who counts as a family member and a family caregiver, that would make a big difference. Companies, of course, have the flexibility to grant that leave, do they not? Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying. Uh, AARP has its own caregiving leave that they would let you have. Uh, and some other companies are doing the same. And, you know, if you if you really want to retain employees, this is the way to do it, to recognize that they have needs and you better address those needs. Stay with us. We're going to pick this conversation up in just a moment. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air talking about a very serious problem, and that is the value of the invaluable caregivers who are not only undervalued, but often Underrecognized. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Our special guest is Susan Reinhardt with AARP. Thanks for being with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. We're so pleased you're sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS on air. We're talking about valuing the invaluable, an annual look at caregiving by AARP. Susan Reinhardt is with us. Susan is executive senior vice president at AARP. Carol Zerniel is with us, who is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron. Uh, Susan, uh, you mentioned in passing early on that some caregivers are embarrassed to say they're a caregiver. Others don't even recognize that they're caregivers. Who are the caregivers? Are they a monolithic group? Can you paint a picture for us? I'm so glad you asked that because we used to always talk about the average, right? The average family caregiver is a woman, and by the way, a white woman who is in her late 40s caring for her white mother who is in her late 70s. That's always what was stated, not in the way I just put it, of course, but talked about the average. But when you're talking about 48 million family caregivers, it, it, there is no average. You know, it's, I, I mentioned earlier, one in four is a younger, a much younger family caregiver, but 40% of the family caregivers are from multicultural groups. And that is an area that has gotten very little attention. There's like this assumption that we know we, from our research, from all the research we've done supposedly of what caregivers might need without even 
asking questions of those that come from various multicultural perspectives. So we have a lot of work to do that. If you're going to get interventions, you've got to know more about the people you're trying to help. Well, you know, and that's such an important point. Uh, The Caregiver SOS program, we operate a lot in the Southwest, in the South, um, and have a huge number of Hispanic, Latina caregivers that we're working with. And we found that telling people to take care of themselves did not always resonate, right? Culturally, um, family first, uh, and it really was helping people take better care of their loved ones because they weren't re- there are a lot of people that just doesn't resonate taking care of myself is a, is a selfish act and and it doesn't appeal to them yeah that's true and there's also stereotypes so a stereotype might be well a latino wants to do this you know they want to take care of their family member you know this this idea or, or black americans that this is the family ethic well don't make that assumption In fact, I usually say we shouldn't always say loved ones. They may be loved ones, but they may be a neighbor, a friend, and not attached in the same way. So there's just such a variety by age. 40% are men. So we have to stop thinking that this is only women. Still, of course, 60% are women, but 40% is a lot. And they are not just doing the finances. That's the other stereotype we have, that they do what's on the books, right? No, many are bathing, dressing, toileting, because part of it, you have a dwindling family size, right? We have fewer children. People are moving all across the country, actually, or the world, actually. So there's not always four or five people to take on a shared job of providing care. I happen to be one of six children. So when my mother and father needed help, we were able to share. That isn't so. I mean, I have two children myself. One is nowhere near me, right? And I hope, I really hope my daughter will help me should I need it, but there's no guarantee. And she has no children. She's not married and has no children. So, you know, she needs to be thinking of her friendship network and all of that's very important. I really believe, by the way, that we should think intergenerational and that everybody should be making friends and helping each other many many generations down <laughs> as yeah, well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that you, that's another um, point that's become crystal clear since COVID is that idea of, of socialization, making friends. And I, I t- always talk on the show about my great aunt Catherine, who was 95. And for her 90th birthday, she filled a hotel ballroom, right? Wow. With, I mean, literally filled a ballroom with different tables of investment club, swimming club, reading club, you know, church club and had all ages um, and what a rich life she had. And she also had a lot of helping hands uh, when she needed something. And yes. and that does, you know, those are choices that we, as we're thinking about our own lives and, and you know, we might need care someday at some point, yes. uh, we can help our family members out with making a few other good friends. Absolutely. I've been struck. Uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, Susan. No, no, go. I've been struck doing this show for several years now with Carol about the cultural and attitudinal differences in viewing and approaching caregiving. Several years ago, for example, uh, we interviewed a physician who was Vietnamese, and he talked about how in his family there was a competition over who would care for mom. And the greatest honor for him was she chose to live with him. Not true in every family. No, that's not true in every family. But that's the whole point, is trying to understand different perspectives and not making assumptions. In that case, you said, man, he might have had a sister, and the assumption is the sister would do this, right? 
may not be the right right decision for that family. And then you mentioned uh, while we've been having this conversation with you, Susan Reinhardt, about uh, how caregivers often need to be trained to do some of the functions uh, that nurses and uh, others are performing. Uh, how do we set up a system where they're actually trained to do that versus someone comes home from the ICU and, and they've got to change dressings and do what have you, and they have no idea how to do that? That's right. Well, we, uh, Carol Levine and I, I understand Carol Levine has been a guest on your show also, did a study in 2012, the first one of its kind that looked at what family caregivers are doing. And at that time, half. So at that time, it was 20 million family caregivers were doing things like you just described, even medications. You know, it's not one pill. It's usually like 10 or 15 different pills and you've got to juggle it and some have to be crushed. And there's just so many things to to be aware of. And we found that half of those family caregivers were worried that they were making mistakes. And they said that they really got very little information, even though they had been in the, the person had been in the hospital multiple times during a year. I mean, many of these folks are pretty frail and have um, hospital visits. And so we did use that information, ARP use that information to create the CARE Act, which is about making sure you ask every patient of any age, by the way, including like um, laboring mothers, any age, any diagnosis, uh, whether or not they have someone who's going to be helping them when they go home. And if so, let's put their name in the medical record, if you agree, and include them in the care and prepare them for what they might be expected to do when they leave. So that is now in 45 states and territories in the United States. And we are now going back and looking at implementation. Is that really happening? How can that happen? I was just talking to some nurses uh, around the nursing shortage, for example, and one role for nurses that want to retire and, and should retire might be virtual nursing, they're calling it. And you could have this nurse do that instruction by, you know, um, electronically or on the phone or even like coming telemedicine. In. Like telemedicine. Yeah, exactly. That's... Only very, are very individualized. And um, I think that could make a huge difference. Yeah. Oh, I love that idea. You know, what we learned from Carol Levine is when they came to her and said, you'll do all of these nursing tasks. She said, no, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that they, you know, that may have been the genesis of the CARE Act right there was her deciding that it was okay to say no until they got a care plan together that she was comfortable with. That's right. You know, I'm glad you raised that, Carol, because family caregivers have no idea what they should say or not say. And this, they just feel so, they feel they have no choice. More than 50% say they have, they felt they had no choice. Now that doesn't mean they don't want to do it completely. I'm not saying that, but it's not like, could you do this? (laughs) No, it's here. Here's what you're going to do. And maybe you get a piece of paper on the way out the door. With, with very little instruction. So we're working very hard on that. I'm, I'm, this is one of my great passions as a nurse and as a, a caregiver advocate for many years now. And, I, and we should be able to do this. There's no reason why we can't do this. Well, so how has, prepared are we for the literally hundreds of thousands of folks who are aging now in their 80s and 90s, uh, and there's not enough caregivers to go around? Not all those folks have the daughter, the son, the family to care for them. Yeah. Part of it is what you just said earlier, uh, Carol, (laughs) your aunt, for example, just making connections with people, giving and receiving throughout life so that you develop a social support network that is mutual. Uh, That's certainly one way to be um, to be doing this. The other is to get your home ready. Some very practical things. You know, can it can you live in your home if you can't climb the stairs? 
What would you do if that would happen? Is there a way you can modify your downstairs to be possible for that? So there's a lot of uh, pre-planning. Of course, people don't tend to do that. So getting the word out is important. And of course, trying to be stronger at your health, getting out, walking. I found for myself recently that, I, but sitting all the time, right? Doing Zoom calls, doing all that, that I was feeling not so flexible, right? So I just started a water aerobics class. I'm trying to do to really make sure that I can be as flexible and as strong as possible. This this isn't just so that you look good. It's that you really are physically as strong as you can be throughout your life. Well, talk a little bit. What makes you optimistic about the future when all the research you've done? What gives you hope? Well, for one thing, it's gotten so much attention. You know, years ago, there were only, I don't mean a handful, but there were some researchers, I'm thinking like in the 70s and 80s, it was, you know, the same people doing some research. Now it's, we have a congressional caucus on caregiving, right? That is, is kind of being reconstituted right now. We have federal legislation to look at policies across federal government and recommendations. There's 500 recommendations of how we can strengthen support for family caregivers. That's the RAISE Act, if you've heard about that. So that, to me, is really significant that there are so many policymakers. And and we are getting it across to these hospitals and other healthcare professionals that ask somebody if you are a family caregiver. And how are you doing and what work can you do? And it's starting to get taught in schools. Susan, before we let you go, we've got about 10 seconds left. Where can folks go to get more information on what you're doing? Um, AARP.org. Susan Reinhardt, thank you so much from AARP. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org. Match believes that adults date better because when you date as an adult, you get to be a little irresponsible with really responsible people. Rip the clothes off someone who actually knows how to put them away. Fall stupidly in love with someone who's actually really smart. Forget being hot. Get them to ugly laugh. Ready to crush on someone who makes you feel whole? If you know who you are and what you want in a relationship, Match is the place for you. Adults Wanted. Download the Match app today.